I didn't want to. I didn't want to remember until I was 45. And what I like to think is that the, the child inside of me decided that when I was 45, it was time. I could deal with this. Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This podcast, a weekly show dedicated to highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. And if you enjoy this show and would like to support this podcast, consider joining my Patreon. You'll gain instant access to over 80 exclusive bonus episodes, entries into giveaways, a discount on merch, and more. Your support allows me to continue bringing you these important stories. So head over to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and become part of the community. I'm your host, Carling, a Canadian queer-identifying 30 something year old providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard hello lynn hello we've had quite the journey just getting to this video yes Yes, i'm proud of us good job i'm proud of we persevered and yeah we did it yes we did. awesome well it's very nice to meet you where are you i'm in canada i'm on the west coast of canada in alberta oh okay so are you do you have any fires there I think there's fires north of us, like in the same province, but we're sending our smoke to everybody. And I'm sorry for that. (laughs) On behalf of Canada, I apologize. (laughs) And whereabouts are you located? I'm in Seattle. Oh, nice. So we actually share your smoke. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm like just, I think I'm like right above you and like over a little bit. Yes. Amazing. How's the weather there? It's sunny today. I'm trying to make my face look less white. I like the color of your face. Let me see if I can. I mean, I rode my bike home from work, so I'm flushed with like hot sweat right now. (laughs) Uh, Maybe that's the color. That's great. Is Seattle usually rainy? I feel like that's what I hear all the time that it's. Yeah, that's what we have to tell people that so they don't move here. (laughs) Fair. All right. Noted. I'll come yeah. check it out, but I won't move there because it'll be right. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you come to check it out, drop by. Let me yeah. know. Amazing. Well, I've been so excited to talk to you. I feel like we've been like we've had this on the books for so long and it's finally here. So I would love it if you could introduce yourself. Tell me who you are, what you do, and then we'll find where your story starts. Well, I grew up in eastern Washington. I'm the oldest of six. My father was a doctor. My mother was a nurse who never worked outside the house. I went to college, got a degree in French, and I taught French. And then I spent some time in Germany, got interested in cooking. So I started a cooking school in my home. And then I kind of got bored with that. Oh, I also got a master's degree in counseling. Oh, and you just like slip that in there on your <laughs> off time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that. And uh, so I got a job with the sexual assault center. And within wow. just a few months, I was getting panic attacks at work. So I was fine. I just, I was fine, but I wanted to check it out with the therapist. I made a mistake and I said absolutely the wrong thing. I said, my father made me stop having periods. And the therapist said, how did he do that? And I got scared. And no, yeah. it wasn't, I, I told him it was that I thought my father hated me. He was harassing me and bullying me. So I stopped having periods that night. I had the first flashback of my father making me, I was a pretty short, making me touch his penis in the shower. And it was probably the easiest incident to remember, I think, because it wasn't all that bad. Right. <laughs> I mean, there were, yeah, it wasn't all that bad. 
And so I decided, okay, I was molested once. Now I know what it's like. I can be a better therapist for these survivors. And then I started remembering more. Wow. And I decided to sue my parents in court because I wanted justice. So when I sued, that newspaper covered the story. And I got lots of, way to go, congratulations. And after I won the case, because my case was corroborated, everyone said, no, those are false memories. We read about that. And I was just shocked to go from accepting that I'd been molested to denying it. And they weren't there. They didn't know. Yeah. They were quite sure that I was not molested. So that's the story of what I did. And then eventually I wrote articles. Elizabeth Loftus, who's a psychologist who testified for my parents, left a clue for me. She said that in her testimony, she said that the first six subjects were dropped from the mole study. And I thought, you know, I need to look further into that. So I did. And it was really fun. How old were you when you went to the psychologist for the panic attacks and started having these flashbacks? I was 45. And so it had been like at least 30 years that since your abuse? Yeah. Yeah. I did a darn good job of being amnestic. But I think that finally I realized it was time to let this out. And how was it accepted by your community? Like your partner and your, did you tell your kids? I told my husband, he accepted it. I told my kids, I told my friends, they accepted it. Because back then it was, you know, it wasn't a false memory. No one had ever heard of that. Right. So I told my siblings and we did something really interesting. We all were in Seattle and we met together and we all shared what we had remembered. And that was, I recommend that to anyone because it's hard after that to go back and say, well, I was never molested. I don't believe that you were. So it worked out really well. And I, so I, I read, I haven't quite finished your book, but I thought it was really interesting when you talked about having your dad come to your therapy session to confront him. <clears throat> Can you talk a bit about that? Like that makes me like oh, cringe up with anxiety. Oh, right on. I was so anxious about that. And so I wrote down a list of things that I wanted to tell him. And I brought, th brought that and then I read them off to him. And I had no idea how he was going to react. And I did look at him after each thing, after each memory that I had told him. And I swear that after memory number seven, he smiled like, oh yeah, I remember that one. So he said, I didn't do anything like that. I don't remember doing anything like that. And I thought, well, I remember. So that was it. I confronted him. The next time I saw him was in the courtroom. And so was the purpose of it to get a confession or was it more for closure and sort of processing what had happened? It was on one hand, it was to see if I could actually do it because I was scared of him. And it wasn't for closure. That was the trial. It's something I just needed to do for myself, for that child that I was. Yeah. I needed to confront him. I didn't expect him to contest, by the way. They right. Don't. Yeah. I was going to say, did you have this hope that he would just own up to it and apologize? <laughs> or I like even, I don't know how an apology would even help, but what was the, ther like, I just feel like as a therapist, that's got to, and I guess now like you've got your master's, how do you even help somebody through that? The therapist and I talked about it for two or three sessions. 
beforehand. And I want to make sure that I would not be disappointed. I would not be so scared that I couldn't do this. It was a huge challenge for me to be able to speak to the guy who had molested me since age five or so. So it was, maybe it was actually getting some, getting practice for the trial. Maybe it was that. But I was really scared and I felt better after, after he left. Did you know going into that therapy session that you were going to sue them? I don't remember, but I knew that I could because Washington was the first state to allow that in my mind, but I don't know how decided I was back then. Right. And what does that look like? Like, what are you suing your parents for? For justice. And so would that mean like you can't sue somebody and send them to jail? But were you looking for like, I know in your book, you had talked about asking him to pay for therapy to say like you traumatized me. The least you could do is pay for some healing. And he had first agreed to it and then retracted. Yes. And so was the suing sort of like a financial, you're trying to get justice in that way? It wasn't, well, it was financial justice because mm-hmm. for me, there was no other kind. Yeah. You not say, you know, I did it, I'm sorry. Right. And there was no sending him to jail. Like, was that statute <clears throat> of limitations done? Yes, I tried. I talked to a detective, I tried, but he said it's too late. That's hard. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about, you approached your mom about it because you didn't know at the time, how much she knew about the abuse. I assume that she didn't know anything at first because what mother would allow her child to be, all her children to be uh, molested like that. And so the first time when I told her about it, when I remembered, she said, she apologized. She said, she's sorry. She didn't know anything about it. And that was the only apology I ever got. And then as it turned out, she knew. And how did you find out that she knew? Because I remembered that I was in bed with dad and she walked by the door. It was open. She looked in and then she looked away because she knew what was happening. Right. But I think I have this theory about mothers who know, and I think most of them do, that they're actually trafficking their kids. Yeah. They let it happen and get a benefit in turn because she got to be married to a doctor. She got to live in a nice house. So that was the return for her trafficking her children. And I think, too, I wonder, like, did she feel like she had what would have been her options to get out of that at the time in her life? You know, like, did she feel trapped in it? I don't know that for her, getting out was an option. It just wasn't. Because things were flying the way they were. She probably, she may have thought about it in the beginning, but she did apologize at first. I think that she repressed much of it, possibly. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what keeps somebody like how can somebody stay married to that person even after the kids have grown up and moved on that's a good point because she found out after the kids had moved on she could have Jeez. but I do wonder like I think this uh, you know I was uh in an abusive relationship and I stayed in it for years and when I think back with clear 2020 vision it seemed easier to stay than it would have been to leave and so everything was easily justified because leaving felt too big. Okay, that makes sense. And she could justify staying. Heck, he couldn't abuse us anymore because we were gone. Yeah. And when I didn't remember before, I mean, after until after I started leaving kids with them when we took a vacation, I think she guarded the grandchildren. I don't think she let them be molested. There's no evidence that she did. Right. And so was the suing you won? Was that the last time you had anything to do with them? 
Yes. Was that hard or did it feel like a release? It felt like I had a darn good excuse not to have anything to do with them. I wasn't expecting to talk to them again. It was done. It was over. It's strange, I know, not to want to have anything further to do with your parents, but that's the way it was. Yeah. I don't think it's a given that just because they're your parents, you have to have a relationship just for the sake of having a relationship. Like, I think it's becoming more normalized to cut ties because it doesn't, it's not healthy. Oh, okay. I don't know how many people can come to that justification though. I think that's a tough decision to make. Yeah. I think socially we're so socialized and conditioned that like our parents are everything and our you know, we have to, we owe them this connection and relationship, regardless of what they were like as parents. I just don't think that sentiment is holding up in these generations coming up. Good. I think that what I decided was that if I wasn't going to see my parents anymore, then I could, I was determined to be the best parent I could be to my own kids. And I'd always tried to do that. So yeah, just be a good parent. That's another way of finding justice, I think. Yeah, is not keeping on that same path and that generational trauma. Yes. And so I find this, this like false memories. So I'm, I forget, what is the name of the psychologist that sort of came up with this or started talking about it? Who chose the idea for parents? It was Elizabeth Loftus. And She's, so who, like, who is she to say this? Well, at the time she was a psychology professor at University of Washington. Okay. She'd already testified in court about eyewitness testimony. It was faulty. And this seemed like it probably seemed like a small step to go to false memories of child sex abuse. And one of her studies, was it about like convincing a group of adults that they had been lost at a mall? Was that sort of like the basis? Do you know much about like the basis of that study? I don't know why the media never questioned her about that. Because convincing... Adults that were lost in a mall and that older relatives said it happened is not like being molested. And no one called her on that. So it's too bad. But that was sort of the foundation of what got her this platform to say that false memories can be created. Yeah. She had really good PR. Right. She was really great with media interviews. Yeah. She was really great at doing this. I don't know if anyone could have done it better than she did. She did journeys of presentations. She did journeys of articles. She did great interviews. Wow. I wonder, like, I guess I was going to say, like, who does that serve? But I guess it serves the perpetrator, the parents, the, like, the people who are guilty of these crimes. It did because she thought of something for them to say in return. Right. Oh, sure. My daughter accused me, but her memories are all false. They were all implanted by her therapist. And people believe that because they wanted to. So you won the trial. Everybody's congratulating you. And then what was the shift where people started doubting you and comparing these false memories? Oh, they didn't congratulate me after the trial. Oh, I thought there was some people did. My close friends congratulated me, the ones that were at the trial. But everyone else, no one else believed me. I didn't get 70 letters from Tricidians saying, oh, I'm so proud of you. Congratulations. No, that never happened because they believed my memories were false. And so what I found out was that it takes three times for the media to convince someone because the first time you hear something strange, you're going to say, oh, interesting. The next time you're going to say, oh, I heard something like that. And the third time you're going to say, 
oh, it must be true. Interesting. So it's difficult to convince people like me that I was molested, but it's easy to convince the public that I was molested. I find it so interesting that like somebody would work so hard within their career to, I don't know, like have this platform and try to convince people that these false memories. Has it since sort of like professionally been debunked that this, that her theories were not accurate? Well, I've debunked it about three or four times. I've debunked it in all my presentations. She is just starting to get some negative responses from the media. This mm-hmm. happened in the Weinstein case and in the Ghislaine Maxwell case. Yeah. Just faintly. And also, she hasn't been testifying for the last year. She hasn't done any presentations. Maybe she's done articles. I don't know. Yeah. But I think she's slowly fading. So... Your book, it's, I've got it right here. It's The Deception That Silenced Millions, False Memories. Was your idea to write a book about your experience, I guess, what came first? The idea to write the book about your experience or incorporating this problematic theory of false memories? That's a good question. I don't know that it was either. So I'm going to explain and you tell me. Okay. Yeah. Everything that I was finding out was so darn interesting. And it could be like Sherlock Holmes or Nancy Drew. It was so much fun for me to investigate false memories. And I also wanted to write about my case. And I I had journaled. And so I tried writing about it as as a story from the beginning to the end. And that was the hardest thing I did. I counted. I've gone over that 18 times before I sent it to the publisher. It was really hard to write. But the second part about about what the false memory people were doing was really exciting and fun. So what do you think? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I've never like considered writing a book, so I don't know. I guess it, it seems like maybe they do just go hand in hand. Like you you took both things that were important, the thing that interested you and the thing that was your experience with it and turned it into a story. I would say that the book wrote itself. I yeah. couldn't not write it. Right. Period. And when you went to get your master's in psychology and then later on then got a job working with victims of sexual assault, looking back now at what you know, do you think there were telltale signs that your brain or body, that those memories were just under the surface? Or like, it's interesting that you went through like all of the schooling and then you got a job and then it got triggered in more of like showing up as panic attacks. But looking back now, are there other ways it might have manifested and without realizing it? I think my therapist would say there are ways that it manifested. Yeah, I was more anxious than most people. I didn't know why. Um, I was fearful. Uh, I couldn't stand up for myself. Things like that. I think my husband could say, yes, there were things and he could list them. I had control issues. I always had to be right. Yeah. Wow. Probably pretty similar to other survivors because sure. if I wasn't remembering that, I think there were, must have been a reason I wasn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to remember until I was 45. And what I like to think is that the, the child inside of me decided that when I was 45, it was time. That when mm-hmm. I was 45, I could deal with this. I could handle it. So I get to remember. Yeah, that's interesting because maybe, yeah, your inner child didn't think you were adult enough or capable enough to handle it up until that point. Yeah. And do you still work with victims of sexual assault? No, I decided that I had to stop after the trial because I would 
fear that the false murder people were going to try and set me up. Mm-hmm. And if someone who would claim she was Melissa to come in, I would talk to her and she would claim that I implanted memories. So I tried right. to do that. Oh, that's awful. Like you're doing such important work and that was the thing that the risk was not worth. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. So have you done other things in psychology, like with that master's? And Well, I mean, you wrote a book, so. No, I never have. In fact, when I moved to Seattle, I was doing a lot of, well, according to psychologists, I was doing a lot of that. And my daughter said to stop. <laughs> I didn't need to analyze her, so I stopped. Right, right. And her husband agreed. Yeah. Did it show up in parenting, do you think, that sort of anxiety and need to control? I would imagine that my daughter would say, yes, it did. I was always afraid that both of my children would have something terrible happen to them. I didn't know why. So I had to be very protective. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Do you think your parenting changed once you addressed it and started healing and doing the work? Yeah. We told our kids that they should go see a therapist if they wanted to. One is and did. And that worked out very well. I think I was a lot more relaxed because I realized what was making me so afraid that something bad was going to happen to my kids. Right. And my kids are strong. They're almost 50 now and they can say no and they can stand up for themselves. I mean, what what more do you need? Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's interesting. I didn't plan on being a parent and I didn't have kids, but I have two stepkids. I notice a lot of reflection in like, why am I so triggered by this or why am I so dead set on this? And, you know, you really have to look in and say, you know, what was my experience and how is that translating into, you know, how I'm trying to steer the ship of who these little people are going to become. It's a lot of work. Yes, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Parenting causes a lot of introspection and like really having to face your own stuff. Hopefully it does. I don't think it did for my parents, but it did for me. But I do think there's this generational shift of like, I think your parents didn't face it and everything was swept under the rug and you just move on and you just keep up with the Joneses and don't say anything. And then it's like this next generation, which would have been your generation, sort of just got this like confrontation of everything that had happened. I think hopefully more than just some, you know, did what you did and like faced it and addressed it and changed course so that, you know, your kid's generation hopefully is that much better off. Oh, that'll be so great. I think they are much better off. Yeah. They think things through. I always wonder, there are 40 million adults who are molested as kids. I want them to be able to deal with that, to learn more, and to raise strong kids. Yeah. 40 million is a lot of people. That's unreal. Is that worldwide or just America? No, it's just the U.S. And it also means that child molesters have been busy. A lot of child molesters have been permitted to molest children. Yes. What does that say about us? Yeah. And so you wrote this book. Has it been out long? Since September. Okay. Wow. Has it been received well? Yes. So far, it's not overwhelming. Uh, The reviews are all positive. I've not heard any negative reviews about it. I was actually expecting to hear from child molesters saying, oh, no, this is terrible. But I haven't heard from anyone like that, or I haven't heard from any of their PhDs. I just heard positive comments. And some people said it's hard to read because of the topic. There is not a lot of, well, to me, there's humor in it, but it's not humor that anyone else would notice, I think. It's mainly yeah. <laughs> No, I think it's great. I think it's like 
considering the topic of child abuse, it's really well written and it's written in a way that's easy to digest with enough sort of like facts and backing and then contrasting your own story that it sort of does lighten it a little bit. It's not just oh, good. this like heavy one person take. Yeah. No, yeah. I yeah, it's really good. I'm really looking forward to finishing it. I just haven't had a chance yet. I'm also thanking my research assistant, Linda, who helped me with all that, who did a lot of research so that I didn't have to go out and get all distracted yes. I did in the beginning. And she did a lot of that research for me. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Linda. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that's so great. I think you took something that would have maybe made a lot of people completely crumble and you... Excellent point. Yeah, you took something that a lot of people could have easily, yeah, just like crumbled into a corner and not dealt with it. And you not only dealt with it within your family and how it's impacted people around you, but to put out a book like this is so critical, I think, because I didn't know about this false memories accusations and all that. So, and I think the, you know, we can only do our best until we know better and then we got to do better. So did you ever take psychology? No. It's in most of the psychology textbooks. Okay. And they really don't have to do much to promote it because all the students learned that all these memories are false. Right. And they yeah. were, it's a huge success for them. Wow. Well, I'm going to make sure that in my show notes and then like on social media, I will put links to the book and to all the information. And then on my Patreon, which I have as like a membership platform, I'm going to give away a copy of the book. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. And I'm sorry that it took us so many tries to get to this interview. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing what else you do. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Good. It'll be a surprise for both of us. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. This is awesome. It's just been fun. Good. I'm glad. It was really great to meet you. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media, share this podcast with your friends, and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com slash I did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content, and ad-free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. I hope you all have a fantastic week ahead and we'll talk soon. Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a die-hard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap.